The only way this makes sense to me, reading the Bible as I do, is to see Scripture as a story of redemption. That's something you're going to hear over and over again. We'll look at ways to see it that way. What works against us doing that is that our scriptures weren't compiled as a story. They were compiled as a library. And unfortunately for many people, a law library, where it's the rules we're supposed to follow. That's one whole side. He's looking at all these things we're supposed to do to keep God happy. That's one way to do it. The other thing is you make these little boxes of thousands of promises. And you pull out a promise every day and try and get God to do that for you. And you actually trivialize this book that I think is a great story. But we haven't published it as a story. And we'll see as we work through that the story doesn't come out clearly just by the way the books were arranged. So I'm going to help you kind of rearrange the books in terms of how chronologically they were written, even down to, you know, what were Paul's early letters and how did they differ from his middle letters a little later on in the journey and the development of the church? And then even later letters were even different. And why were they different? And seeing this progressive revelation of who God is in the world. This is the story that I think makes Scripture make sense and answers some of the biggest objections with it. Here's the Scripture that I think really speaks to this story, and there there are others that we'll look at as well. This is Galatians 4, talking about the coming of Christ in the world. And he says, What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, though he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons, because you are sons. And God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son... God has already made you also an heir. Paul is unpacking this story, this big, broad story. Starts out, we're, we're like little children, slaves. We couldn't really understand who the father was. We couldn't even begin to know how to live the way he wanted us to live. We were lost in sin. And so the early part of God's revelation is, here's the law, follow it, even though he knew we couldn't. We're also told that in Scripture. The law was not meant to succeed. God had no hope that the law would actually redeem humanity, that any of us could be good enough. The law was flawed because of the failure of our own flesh and the waywardness of our own flesh. So the Son comes into the world in the fullness of time. And we're, again, we're not told what that means. To me, at least, it means this. Jesus comes at the first moment in human history where God had any hope that we would understand grace. When society, civilization, man's consciousness, whatever, had grown to the point where it could take in an understanding of God that was bigger than our own fears and bigger than our own torment at His presence. And for God, that took how many years of human history and 1,500 years of law, and finally we get to the point where the Son can make Himself known in the world. And now God wants to redeem us as sons, no longer slaves. Here we have that same contrast, out of fear and into a relationship of sonship. No longer a slave, now a beloved child. And as a beloved child, allowed to live differently. I think this begins to give us the story of Scripture. What makes it not a law book that we're supposed to read, but a storybook of that unfolding revelation. So we can see ourselves in the Old Testament and the Old Testament people, in the early part of that story, intellectually, Children, I don't mean that demeaning. I just mean so raw in our sin and our failure, so terrified of God's presence when he got near them that God had to start at a very rudimentary level. Even even we'll make the argument, giving them a religion that didn't work so he could win them out of it. 
but using those things to hold them captive long enough to mature to a point where the fullness of time, the sun comes in the world and completes the story and fulfills the story. I always, when I read the Gospels, am amazed how many lawyers there were in the Gospels or experts in the law, depending on your translation. Lawyers. Why? Because the, even the Jewish people had come to see their Old Testament as a series of laws that could be chart out the obligations. And now if you fulfill these obligations, you're fulfilling the law and the mandates God gave us. And it all got characterized that way. But Jesus comes to say that those were doctrines made by men. Isn't that what he says? You think you're following God. Your hearts are far from me. You're not wanting God at all. Your rules are but doctrines written by men. And so he, I think every one of these people are engaging the same kind of story. And in that, we begin to see what I want to call a revelational flow of Scripture. And that is to see that something that seems to be true here shifts in the story to something more true and then shifts to something even more true through the whole of the story. I'm just going to give you a few examples to take a look at. The first one is just sacrifices, offerings, and tithes. And we see at the beginning that there's none for Abraham. There's no obligation to do this. Of his own free will, as an act of generosity coming back from a battle, he gives a tenth of everything he had to this priest called Melchizedek, someone we'll talk about also down the road, because who is that guy and where did he come from? But Abraham ties not as any kind of obligation to God, not as any kind of covenant. He gives out of the abundance of his gratefulness to God. And then through the law of Moses to sustain the Levitical system, to sustain some of the ceremonies and feasts and festivals, tithes and offerings and sacrifices were part of that to give humanity a sense that they'd fulfilled an obligation to God. But the question is, was it an effective obligation? When they sacrificed that goat on the altar, when they put the blood or the sacrifice that sheep on the altar or bull, put the blood on the scapegoat, sent it into the wilderness, did they have any personal sense of cleanliness? And Hebrews 9 and 10 says they did not, that the, law, that the sacrifices couldn't make the worshiper perfect in conscience. They felt as dirty after the ceremony as before. They still felt estranged from God. The sacrifices couldn't resolve the shame issue that was part of our fall. We'll talk more about that down the road as well. So, it, so, Abraham, so Moses gives them these set of laws. And we'll say, why is that? Did he give them a religion to win them out of it? And I think that's the point I'm going to make later on. But David already, still Old Testament, David sees through all that. Psalm 51, he's repenting for his sin with Bathsheba when Nathan exposes the lie, the, the rape, the murder of her husband, and all of that. He's saying sacrifices and burnt offerings you do not desire. It's the Old Testament. That's, that's what God gave Moses to do. And David's already saying, no, that isn't it. What God wants is a broken and contrite heart. Isaiah comes along and rejects that. God doesn't want offerings and sacrifices at all. In fact, God's sick of their festivals, sick of the, all the things they're doing. The things he prescribed, he's tired of. He doesn't want. He's moving on. Malachi then says to withhold the tithe is to cheat God and kind of warns them late in Israel's history that they're cheating God with the withholding of the tithe. And then Jesus comes and becomes the sacrifice for us that all the sacrifices of the Old Testament couldn't achieve, couldn't accomplish, couldn't let us find the freedom. And then finally, the early believers didn't seem to give out of this tithing obligation. The appeal to them in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, 9 is that God loves a cheerful giver, not one who gives out of compulsion, your tithe, obligation, sacrifice. God loves a cheerful giver who gives out of the fullness of his heart and life and that God wants to win us so much into a relationship with a generous God that we live generously in the world. 
And generosity begets generosity. We can go to Matthew 6, Luke 12. God's talking, Jesus is talking about that same generosity. Be a child of a generous God. You will live in the world as a generous person. And so there's a, a revelational flow through the course of scriptures that's actually, this is what we thought was true. And now, well, maybe that isn't quite true. And it gets changed and changed again. And there's more of those. There's the generational curses. We hear this all the time. People, you know, do I have a generational curse from my ancestors? Do I need to have deliverance because I have this temptation or whatever? And they usually quote, God will visit the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Well, that's something God said to Moses. Or something at least Moses says God said to him in Exodus chapter 20. That God's going to visit the sin to the third and fourth generation. But Ezekiel, David comes along and he curses the children of a wicked man. We're going to look at this passage a lot more. Because this is a fun passage to go, wow, how do we interpret the Psalms when David goes off pronouncing fire and brimstone on all kinds of people he doesn't like. How do, we, how do we interpret that? But David then uses that curse. But we get to Ezekiel 18, and God's already saying, no, I don't do that. I don't visit the sin of the father on the children. If the father sins then, and his son's righteous, then I'll treat the son righteously. If the father is righteous and the son is not righteous, then I'm going to treat... So what we thought was true in Exodus turns out not even to be true in Ezekiel, that it's not that... And you get down to who Jesus talks about whoever believes. Jesus is dealing with the individual life coming to engage God as Father. And he's not saying you do that on the basis of your parents or your, your heritage or anything like that. It's you that he wants to engage. And what do we conclude for that? We, we conclude that when people are quoting Exodus to say, I need deliverance from some generational curse on my family, I'm going, dude, you're misinformed. That's not even true. I don't even have to go to the New Testament for that. I can go to Ezekiel 18 and say, not true. What that illustrates from Exodus, I think, that's important for us to know is, yes, as parents raising children, flaws in your life also get passed on to your children. So you want to be careful how you raise your kid. If you're an impatient person, we know a lot of molesters come from relationships where they were molested. So we do know, not as a generational curse from God, just sins in the race. And we sometimes pick up our proclivities to certain sins and temptations from the kind of environment we grew up in. So take that seriously. But don't see it as a curse of God because it's not then. I'm just cursed to be like my dad. You know, my dad was a wife beater, so I'm a wife beater and there's nothing I can do about it. That's not what's being said. Or your dad was a, you know, murdered somebody. So now you have a lousy life because God won't respect you because he's visiting the punishment for your father's sins on you. In fact, we're going to find the whole punishment dynamic to be something that changes in this revelational flow of Scripture. So even, even that gets changed through the course of it. And then this, this is, and I think this is the most telling of all of these. The law says to stone the adulterer, not just the woman, man and woman, stone them. That's a pretty serious approach to dealing with sin in the community. It is going to at least restrict future sin. We don't know how often Israel did this, to be honest, because Israel wasn't faithful to a lot of the stuff they were supposed to do. We don't even have in Scripture any indication that they ever observed a Sabbath year. We know they really got locked in on the Sabbath day, but we don't know that they ever walked with God for seven years and actually took a year off. It's never recorded in Scripture that they did. They might have. We just don't know. And so you have, you know, put to death the one that commits adultery. But Jesus comes. God, the lawgiver. Don't, don't have Jesus different from the Father. One of my lines in the shack that I love, uh, and one of the ones that I wrote was God's, Papa saying to Mac when he's sitting on the porch, I sent my son to show them what I was like, and they only believed it was true of him. 
So don't have Jesus coming down and forgiving the adulterer as, you know what, Jesus is just sneaking around doing stuff that dad really didn't want done. He is the exact representation of the Father's nature. It was the Father's good pleasure, Colossians chapter 1, for all his fullness to dwell in the Son and through the Son to reconcile all things to himself. So when Jesus comes and he's confronted with the adulteress, does he stone her? Does God do the very thing we understood God's law to prescribe? And now that begins to change the story. There's something going on in Scripture. of a, It's not God changing his mind. It's not God became different. There's a revelational flow in the story of things that were true, become less true, and sometimes become untrue as God continues to give us a fuller picture of who he is and how he's come to redeem the world. So the story of redemption, you know, 1 Peter says this, and this, this, I think this gives us great hope. This, this scripture, particularly toward the end of it, he said, and this, what, this helps you understand the flow. Concerning this salvation, Peter talks about, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that you have, that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So even Peter is saying, you know, the Old Testament guys who wrote this stuff, they had not a clue what they were writing about. They're writing things as they're hearing it, as they're seeing it. They're reflecting things about God that we find out later aren't true. I'm going to give you some specifics on that of, of what changed in our perception of God. Again, I don't believe God's changing. I believe our perception of God is changing as God widens the revelation so the light comes into our hearts. And I think Scripture itself makes that clear when you stop reading it as a law book and start reading it as a storybook and see the unfolding of that story. The story of redemption, basically, I'm going to outline it here. We're going to plug this a whole lot more. God created a world for us to enjoy him. We chose a life from, apart from him and plunged the world into darkness. God set himself to win us back to himself from our own sin and shame. In that, he reveals himself as loving. He invites us to follow his ways out of that love, not out of obligation, obedience, and fear. Faithful even in our faithlessness. This is Old Testament revelation. I'll show you, that's the core revelation of the Old Testament. God is faithful when we are faithless and holds in check until the Redeemer comes. Again, I'm wanting to bring society to a sense of fullness. Then the incarnation, God makes himself known in human history. Now we don't read about him, we get to meet him. Some of you have read my stuff, you think you know me, you've heard podcasts I've done, and you know a lot about my life, you do. Hopefully when you actually meet me, and if we got a chance to go out for dinner and sit down and talk, you'd actually get a fuller sense of who I am, not just who you thought I was from reading my stuff. How much more God, the infinite God, could he be contained in a book? And could, we just, could God get everything about himself so that we could know God in a book and miss the chance to know him in the Son first? And now in the Son, in the Spirit, also know the Father. And then believers explore that relationship. Here's the New Testament. Here's Acts and the epistles. Believers are exploring this incarnation, how God made himself known. And now how does that translate into the life we live as loved children of God? And hammering that out is a pretty complicated uh, a, a story, but it's a fun part of the story. And then there's hints of the end of this whole new, new heaven, new earth being reconciled at the end of the age, that that's still coming for us to happen. We're going to look at that story this way. 
Now, this is a row of grapevines, okay? I had a friend of mine draw this for us. We're going to look at this story of the Old Testament as a series of, of grapevines to help us understand. You know, grapevines, some of them grow back here this way, some grow that way, and these vines get all eventually all tangled up in the story. We're going to take the story like that, and we're going to look at the important people in this story who become, not because these are more important than anybody else, but these people actually reflect a change in the story. Another change in the story. Another change in the story. Culminating in here's the whole fruitfulness of the story. The revelation of Jesus in the world. And if we could put these, this is how we're going to anchor the Old Testament so we get a sense of story. It's not we're going to, you know, give you a chronological reading of the New Testament. I don't even know that that's important. What we want to know is though where these books fit in that story. Adam, Abraham, uh, Moses, Isaiah, Nehemiah, Jesus, and then Paul. As, as anchoring the fulfillment of that story. And then when you're reading the Old Testament, New Testament, you're going, oh yeah, I'm reading Ezra. I, he's right before Nehemiah. I understand what's going on in this part of the story. For many of us, if you tried to read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is a huge book, I've read it tons of times, but if you tried to read that story, and here's how you read it. You wake up one morning and you open up book two and read page 333 to 335. And the next day you pick up book one and you read page two to eight. And the next day you pick up book and you just keep reading that way. You're going to eventually say, this is stupid. This, this thing makes no sense, right? And that's what we do with the Old Testament, actually. Even though Genesis, yeah, it's the first book. It can get us started. And Exodus, yeah, it follows pretty closely. But as you get much further into it, there's lots of stuff going on that we miss the importance of the story because it's not a story for us. It's a law book, and that law book has created certain problems for us in understanding the story. This is what I skipped earlier, and I want to come back to, because when we talk about God being a God we need to be afraid of and that changing, this is Kevin DeYoung. He's uh, from Michigan. A guy wrote a book called well, Why We're Not Emergent. I don't want to get in the details of this. Basically, he's going to make the argument why we need the doctrine of eternal punishment and the wrath of God. He's going to make the argument we need to be afraid of God to live the righteous lives we need to live. And what also you know is he's got a lot of proof texts for all of these. And I don't remember exactly what they all are, but first we need God's wrath to keep us honest about evangelism. If we didn't know we were going to hell for not evangelizing, we wouldn't evangelize. That's his point. Uh, the second point is we need God's wrath in order to forgive our enemies. And he's 1219 is in Romans, is vengeance is mine, I will repay. And what he's saying is I can't honestly forgive you if I don't know God's really going to get you later in a huge, worse, horrible way than I can possibly do to you. And we could go on and on with these. I've listed them in your, so you can look at all of them. It's almost, it's funny, except that it's sad. There's many people that believe this. They serve God out of this fear and construct. And if I don't get this right, if I, if I don't, we need God's wrath in order to risk our lives for Jesus. Because we don't know if he's not going to get us worse than we wouldn't, you know, risk our lives for him now. Totally, to me, when he, when he does this, and the chapter in the book, if you ever take time to read it, and I didn't necessarily encourage you to read it because it's just a lot of stuff I wouldn't love, but he really sounds like a child that's really, who, a child who gets beat up by his dad all the time, but he's trying to convince you his dad's a great guy. And I only get beat up because I deserve it. And I, I'm a bad guy, and he just, and every abused child blames themselves for the abuse they're getting. Every abused wife is, is blamed by the abusing husband. Well, if you wouldn't do that, you wouldn't make me angry. And it, the, the whole psychosis of an abuser is it's okay if dad's mean because sometimes we need it. The other thing I want to illustrate here is when you pull things like proof texts, and that's why rarely when I talk, people say, you don't quote enough scripture. You don't put enough, you know, A, B, you know, addresses into things. And the reason I don't is because I think it's very dangerous to see our reading of scripture as a constant set of proof texts. 
Because I honestly think you can prove anything from Scripture by pulling a Scripture out of here and a Scripture out of here and a Scripture over here. You could even prove astrology if you wanted to because, my goodness, there was a star in Bethlehem. And there's references to the constellations in Job. So, my goodness, maybe we could all do astrology and God really likes that and that's the way to get guidance for ourselves. Except that there's other places in Scripture that say you're out of your mind. A, you don't need it. B, it's nuts. And C, stop it. Knock it off. It's the whole story that makes this stuff make sense. And when people proof text, well, God gets vengeance, therefore you can forgive. You miss the whole essence of forgiving. Forgiveness derives from love, not anger and fear. It really is taking your foot off someone else's throat because that benefits you. Not because it pardons them. It frees you from the ongoing bondage of their influence on your life and the hurt you've derived for what they've done to you. And forgiveness is not because I better forgive because God's going to get them better later. That leads to, I think, what's the opposite of forgiveness. He has eight of these that just go on and on to argue for why we need the wrath of God. And I could take all eight of these things and argue for you that if you learn to live loved, all of these are going to look cheap in comparison. You're going to forgive people because you know how much you've been forgiven by God. So that's what Jesus teaches. No sense in me holding something on you. Why? Because God's forgiven me so much already. And you don't find God, if you read the scriptures, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I almost think that's hilarious scripture. Because read the scripture and say, how vengeful is God really? There's not a lot of vengeful moments. We read them as vengeful. God's doing things in human history for his purposes. But ask Uriah the Hittite when you get to heaven, the man whose wife David raped and the man he murdered so he could hide her pregnancy and take him into his household. He was one of David's valiant men, one of his closest buddies. He has him killed. You ask, God, you ask Uriah when you get to heaven, how vengeful is this God anyway? And he's not as vengeful as some of us would like to make him out to be. That view of God gets us to a misunderstanding of a lot of things. Another proof text I'd give you, Psalm 119. Um, Verse 11, very familiar verse. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, if you memorize that in Sunday school as a kid, what we taught that, that's about scriptural, scripture memory. And if you memorize scripture, then uh, you're going to be a better person. And, and we, we've made something that, could the verse apply to that? Yeah, I guess. But is that really what he's talking about? Scripture memory to endear God to you or scripture memory? What he's saying is God's word, not memorize scripture. Understand who God is and the ways in which God works. When you understand who he is and the ways he works, then you won't sin. You'll find freedom to live love. Not, and so we, we take these proof texts, we iconicize something from them, and then we think we fulfilled them when we long haven't done it. When you let scripture interpret scripture, when you pick up the story the way the story's written, and learn to live in this book as a story, which I'm going to help you with that little row of grapevines, and we're going to work through how this story works so you can have confidence say, okay, now I know why he's saying that. Now I know how that fits in the story. And then I think we can be more, not only more effective students of Scripture, but we can live more freely in our own relationship to him. <laughs> 